0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah
1: study. We are, as Ruth just pointed out, in the book of Bamidbar, And so that means what in Hebrew?
2: In In the wilderness.
1: In the wilderness. What is it called in English? Numbers. How come? The censuses. Censuses. The censai. So we get a bunch of different censuses uh, in this Senses- parsha, um, which, believe it or not, there is a fascinating commentary about looking at the language of each of these censuses um, and who's included in which census and why, and Looking into some of the deeper meanings behind what it means to, to do a census. So, there, but there, because there are three censuses, the um, the book gets the name in Latin numbers. But even for the rabbis, they they called it the fifth piku"dim of numbers. Right, the fifth meaning there's five books. This is the fifth. That's about numbers that involves numbers. So even in usually, usually Latin has a completely different right, um, translation or way of understanding the book than the rabbis. But, but in this case, the rabbis, too, call it in Hebrew, the book of numbers in a way. So, so everyone gets it that this book c- deals a lot with taking a census for different reasons, for different purposes. Um, And we are in Bamidbar, we are in the wilderness. It is not desert. So we tend to, when we imagine these stories in this book, because this is the book of the period of wandering, essentially, we tend to think of it, or at least I do, as like Lawrence of Arabia, (laughs) right? You know, they are wandering in the desert. They are not wandering in the desert. They are wandering in a desert, like a kind of desert, but it's like what you see outside. So that is, California is a desert climate. That doesn't mean nothing grows, right? It means there's a certain amount of rainfall per year, and so certain kinds of vegetation won't grow. Lots of kinds of vegetation won't grow. It doesn't mean no vegetation grows, So wilderness is not desert necessarily. What it is, I mean, it has that, certainly that dry, you know, desert feel, but it is not like vastly, you know, rolling hills of sand. It's not sand dunes. It's not sand dunes. And the only reason I make that distinction is because I think we get this image that it's completely desolate, you know, and there are. At risk at every moment of dying from heat exposure, you know, or or something. Like if you fall down in the sand, you may not get back up. And it's just not that dire. It is it is a wilderness, meaning that there isn't civilization around them. But it's like if you're driving from here to Vegas, you know, somewhere along the way, you know, you hit those places where it's just windmills, right? right? But there's still vegetation. So the flocks. Still have food. It's just that you're not confronting other villages, other towns, other cities. You're you're in the wilderness. That in that sense,
3: it's really scrub veg What they call scrub vegetation.
1: So something like that. Not
0: necessarily. Uh, I hear that um, Israel had a lot of trees till the Turks
1: or the, somebody cut them down. But so remember that Israel is kind of like California in that it has a lot of different climate zones so in the north you know Mount Hermon gets snow routinely um so people go skiing at Mount Hermon but then you go to Eilat and you're in absolutely you know desert conditions the Dead Sea serious desert but 'er Beersheba has scrub vegetation has trees um, then you go further north and you get rolling green hills. When there's been a good winter of rain, it looks like Ireland up there. I mean, I've never been to Ireland, but I remember driving, you know, over the hills of the Galilee and <clears throat> going, what? This is, this is Israel? Are we sure we didn't cross a border somewhere? Rolling green hills and mountains and huge trees and, right, so... So they're very different climates in Israel. That's how we know sometimes a little bit about where these stories originate.
2: Right? So I once flew from Cairo to um, Tel Aviv, which is pretty much on the same route. And looking at the plane, desert or no desert, there's not much there. (laughs) It's empty. Where? I mean, between Cairo and Tel Aviv, which is the route... Which is the route that they took. What was part,
3: the
2: topography? Excuse me? Well, par, part of it is sand dune type desert, desert, the Negev, And then part of it is scrub. But regardless of what plants are there, it's empty. It's bummy bar. And vast. And vast. It's big and it's empty and it's not settled.
1: And still to this day, I don't know if you know this. All, most of the population of Israel lives from Beersheba North, right? Most, I, I forget the percentage, but it's huge, mm-hmm. huge. Like 75, 80% live from Beersheba North. Beersheba is the geographical center of Israel. What does that mean? That the, from Beersheba to Eilat, there's nothing... Right? Just tiny, you know, little population. So it's still bemidbar, Still. Now. All right. So the sense of bemidbar is this sense of vast open space, but they have flocks with them. Right? They are doing semi-nomadic, pastoralist kind of things. Because we see all the offerings that are made. Right? Um, well, ostensibly the flocks came out of Egypt with them. Ostensibly. Across the
2: Red
0: Sea. Ostensibly.
1: Right. Correct. You never see them in the in the <laughs> depiction of the crossing, the flocks. Of the, the, uh, the bulls.
0: From Dan to Beersheba, it's sort of uh, this is the, the territory.
1: From Correct. From Dan to Beersheba yeah. is with the populated territory until now you get down to Elat, which is a resort town. All right. Bamidbar. This is our people's story of remembering a time where we were completely present to, dependent on God. In general, the rabbinic imagination about this period is very romantic. So we, we think, oh my gosh, the desert 40 years schlepping. That is not how it is characterized in the rabbinic imagination. It is looked back upon with a wistful kind of longing for that kind of intimacy with God again. um, We think of it as, oh my God, they messed up, so they're going to schlep around. Yes, that's true. And for the rabbis, there was an immediacy of the experience of living with God that we don't get once we cross over into the promised land
3: camping under the stars
1: mm-hmm. camping under the stars it is being under the chuppah the sukkah is the chuppah and so so i want us to hold that image as well when we think about you know this period this setting these stories it's not just ay they slept it was horrible you know it was god fed them Immediately, God fed them every day with a double portion on Friday for Shabbos, right? You know, there was an immediacy about it that the rabbis looked back on with, with longing. Ruth?
3: The rabbis look back on it as the possibility for women, for women, <laughs> sorry, it's on my mind still. Um, for the people being closer to God or that they were?
1: That they were. That they were. Yes. Now, continually, they kept not being able to trust that because we're human and they had been slaves. And clearly, our narrative is about they couldn't get there. They couldn't do it. But, they, but the rabbis remember that as, as, a, as an immediate contact that we never had again, that we're always looking for again. Was that because they were closer to nature and they had to use nature more than I mean was there a connection there that they lost once they do you think so it, it's in so yes, and for the rabbis it wouldn't have been nature, right it would have been the absence of those things which separate us from each other and from a sense of the immediacy of God's presence that we only feel in nature without the walls. So I think it's more about what wasn't there, right? They, they were intense. It's both. Right. So, you know, for them, for the rabbis, it's, it's the presence of God that they felt more immediately because they weren't in these boxes that keep us from each other and, and have us feel safe, and therefore, unaware of, right, our frailty and our, you know, so there's some things that, that civilization by its very design, yes, because it separates us from nature, but also for other things it does for to us that then um, takes us out of an, a direct experience of God's presence, or, or at least that's that, that's how it is in our tradition.
4: It's almost as if there's no room at this point for... The arrogance that allows us to separate ourselves from thinking that that there's a need for God in our lives—it's sort of like, the, like sort of the more the more we divorce ourselves from the realization that there is a need for God in our lives, it's sort of the worst things that befall us.
1: Right, right, and they're so that's where they're clear, right? That they're dependent in that sense.
0: That, uh, when you get beyond. Uh, the uh, first five books uh, you don't have God quite as immediate as you do here in the the Torah
1: correct and Deuteronomy is that shift Deuteronomy is the place where God retreats into God's heaven God's not walking around anymore right it's a big change from Genesis Um, and that's true that the God from Deuteronomy on it's a much different theology. It's a much different sense of God's presence and what that means. And
0: Maybe that's what the rabbis uh, are missing. I think,
1: I think, well,
0: Pam.
5: So I so just going to bring up what you have brought up about this before, which uh, moved me. You said it was before we separated ourselves into different categories ourselves. You know, the, you know, whatever the, the, the however we, uh, some people are richer and poorer and more important maybe than other people and poor. we were all the same there and that to me is very beautiful and as you said the mythic imagination we, you know we we're all the same yeah kibbutz yeah. no i was going to say
2: yeah. what pam said we think like i guess <laughs> I was is it motto in numbers mm-hmm. yes and there, there you had this vision—how beautiful of your tents, of looking down and seeing how beautiful all the Israelites are together—and very idealized. It is indeed.
3: We're also separated. are also separated from other cultures, other peoples, so they're only themselves, and they're not being influenced by any outside forces.
1: Right, and when they are, it goes very badly. Mm-hmm. At Balsafon, there is an incident. And they get involved with the women, of course, mm-hmm. of Balzafon, and they start worshiping other uh, gods, and it's not pretty. What happens, right? So uh, uh, Bal Peor, sorry. So um, so we're shown even here, right, that the minute they got any exposure, it was bad, right? And um, and when Moshe goes to get the Torah, and they're at Sinai and left alone for too long, they slide back into this tendency to, right? So it's very true. They are, they are protected from those very things that would pull them out of a direct experience of yud Hey vav Hey as God. And, and it never goes well again. <laughs> like, like, right, once they get into the land, what, what comes after? Reuben pointed out the texts that come after the five books. What are most of those texts? War. <laughs> Josh was all about war. And then after that come the early prophets. What are the early prophets doing?
4: You've turned away.
1: From- You've turned away. We don't have prophets unless they're criticizing the people. That's what prophets do. And we have a bunch of them. Right? Because they're constantly turning away once they cross over into the promised land.
0: It's almost like you're describing this bubble. For this period, and as soon as without distraction, and as soon as
1: somebody goes outside
0: that bubble for whatever reason by whatever distraction,
1: yes, it's not going well. I should it. yes. And so it's not that they just started the desert. I mean, they were at Sinai in the Book of Exodus. I'm not, you know, when we were interrupted by Leviticus. Remember, there was originally four books of the Torah. Yeah, there were originally four books. <laughs> Margot. <laughs> Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Leviticus was just for the... Leviticus gets inserted between... Well, I mean, the the P source gets inserted between Exodus and Numbers. So Numbers picks up where Exodus left off. So we're, we're... we didn't just get to the desert, right? I'm going on and on about Bamidbar because now we get the narrative, the mythic memory of what happens after they right, have the experiences of Exodus now that they're going to, right? They're going to be heading towards the promised land and of course we know what happens in a few weeks. Right. But, but remember at the point we're at right now, they are on their way to take Israel. Yes, they're on their way. They've gotten this experience of the theophany at Sinai. They are heading towards taking Canaan. That is what we're preparing for. It hasn't happened yet that they're going to be wandering for 40 years. They're on their way. They are three days away or whatever, you know, from, from coming to the border where they're going to have to take Canaan. All right. Chapter
3: one, verse one. Okay. I don't know.
1: Ninety-one. Kind of agree. Somebody want to read?
2: On the first day of the second month in the second year following the Exodus from the land of Egypt, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the Tent of Meeting, saying, "Take a census of the whole Israelite community by the clans of its ancestral houses, listing the names every male head by head." You and Aaron shall record them by their groups, from the age of 20 years up, all those in Israel who are able to bear arms. Associated with you shall be a man from each tribe, each one the head of his ancestral house. These are the names of the men who shall assist you.
1: Okay. So the first census, what, what does the Hebrew tell us? Se'u et Rosh Kol Adat B'nai Israel. Literally, what does it literally say? Lift up the head of every member of the community of Israel, according to their families, their ancestral names, every male. L'gul gulotam What is your translation for that? L'gul gulotam The last Head. Head by head Head by head Head by head Gilgul is a Circle Right? So Lift up the head Of every member of The community According by their Ancestral houses By their names Every male Head Essentially Like Each one no se avon va vechata Right, we sing it at the high holidays, the thirteen attributes of God. No say, who lifts up, meaning from off of us, sin. So Se'u, lift up. So this is an odd way, even in Hebrew, to talk about. Counting people, right? So it's just very interesting language. From twenty years old and upward, right? All that are able to what? Bear arms. Bear arms. Right. Bear arms. Literally, yotzei tzavah. All who are able to go forth as part of the army, be Israel in Israel. Meaning the people, Israel. You shall number them. Tif Kedu Otam. You shall number them by their hosts, you and Aaron. All right. Kol Yodzei Tzavah. The fighting force is being counted. Why? We're getting our own. We don't know
0: what you're going into
1: because they're, they're going to fight. That is what's about to happen. They are preparing for war. They are preparing to battle. That's what the, they're supposed to do now. Now that they're out of Egypt, they get the Torah. Now they got to go build the society that they just agreed to the premises about what that society's got to look like. Okay. Now they got to go take Canaan. That's what they were brought out of Egypt for. Alright, so we're counting the fighting force. Yes? Alright. So they get this language of se'u et rosh kol adat b'nei So what does it mean to lift up the head? Tell me about what that suggests. Well,
5: it reminds me of the part where, uh, you know, lift your countenance up or. we're does that mean coming face
1: to face with God alright so so what does that imply about this term lifting up the face the head
2: that to is, look at to recognize
1: yeah. to recognize, to, recognize to look at what else what?
5: Uh, to accept the to also be looked at so you're not just looking at something but you're showing your
1: face. You okay. are visible. Yeah. When your face is up.
5: the way of being counted in
1: the. You are visible.
3: And, you know, metaphorically.
1: You matter if you're seen. You're present. You're, you're present. Pride. You're not hiding. You're not shrinking. You're not, you're not shrinking. You're not putting your face down, which would imply. Don't count. Don't, I don't count. I hide I my wanna, countenance, right? I'm not willing to fight. I'm not willing to fight. It's I don't up. have dignity. It's
3: assertive.
1: It, so it's lifting assertive. the face is assertive. I'm here. I'm ready. I have dignity. I am visible.
5: I'm still stuck on why this <laughs> is for next year. Why, did have, why was being led out of Egypt to go fight, take Canaan? Couldn't
3: have God have just said, come on out and here's your place."
1: Uh-huh. Ah, so Laura wants to know, why was the plan, I'll take you out of slavery, give you Torah, and then make you go to war? Why isn't it, I've prepared this really great place for you?
5: Because well, it's not a, a free, free gift, begin, it's
1: cooperative. It's life. not a gift, says Bert. It is a cooperative.
5: Free. Well, requiring you to bear arms against other beings and kill them. <laughs>
1: So, obviously, our story is not only miraculous. Right, you could
5: have said, and, you know, chop down the trees and build it, and that's cooperative, too. But, you know.
1: but what's the reality?
3: There were tribes in there.
1: There were West. people there. The reality is, there were people there.
3: Well, there's all this wilderness. Why didn't they just set down there, you know, their stuff there?
1: It's like, why didn't the Jews find a homeland in Uganda? It's the same question. So, that... Okay. That is exactly the answer, because we come from the land of Israel. These stories were written by a people who lived in a place called Israel. They're remembering a mythic experience of wilderness, but it's written by people who are living in Israel. So you're not going to write the American history story saying, why didn't we live in Uganda? Right? Because this is where we're meant to be. Duh? I'm not being sarcastic to you. I'm saying, you're just like, well, duh, we're supposed to be here because we're Americans. Like, you know, and so this is our story about why we're supposed to be here and how we got here. Right. So that, that's, why, that's why, it's job security, Laura. <laughs> So it's fine that you don't remember. So, right? Cause, that's my job is to, like, we have, we have Torah's mythic history timeline, and we have lived history. So in Torah's history, this is happening before taking the Promised Land. In real history, they lived in Israel and wrote a story about... Of course we had to conquer it. We had to conquer it. Because how else do you get to be there? I mean, the American story is we took it from the British. No, we took the... We beat the British and declared independence. And- well,
2: but we had manifest destiny. Our kids are taught in school, which is like we were... Destined to take over California, which is certainly
1: right certainly Torah's understanding is manifest destiny. Believe, uh, destiny, capital D, right? So, yud hey is directly implied. Not, I mean, not even implied. Is is you know? I mean, it's about yud hey destinying that we that's your place. that that's your place.
4: I think that it's it's interesting that I think the the backstory of this entire discussion is kind of the historical reality that as far as we're concerned we living in the United States is that there is an actual historical record of everything that came before we got here in the sense that we're kind of very aware that we got here and there were all these Native American tribes here and we sort of gradually pushed them out of the way (laughs) even though that are the history that we learn. It sort of de-emphasizes that.
2: See, sort of. Sort of. <laughs> yeah. But
4: but if you look at but if you look at what we what the record is in Torah, you have people living writing this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years when there was absolutely no historical record, and so you needed a myth story to kind of explain why we were here. I mean, it's probably. I think I would think that. That at the time that the Torah was written, you didn't have people sort of sitting around thinking, gee, did we really have to invade Canaan in order to live where we live? Well,
1: let's remember they didn't invade Canaan. Can we remember that for a minute? What? <laughs> this, this is mythic history. That This is very important. This is mythic history. There is no archaeological evidence for the conquest of the land of Canaan. There is no evidence for Joshua and his battles. None. Now, (laughs) these are, for the most part, these are converted Canaanites oh boy oh boy so yeah this is big this is really big this is huge so so we are dealing with with the the mythic history of people who are living in Israel and here's Israel lovely isn't it alright so you've got tribes in the north you've got tribes in the south you've got Divisions between them. David builds his new capital of this new nation state that he's pulling together. He builds it where? Right on the line. Right on the line. Right in the center. Right of north and south. This new nation state that David's pulling together is made up of these loosely confederated tribes. But if we go back... To another part of history, those folks are Canaanites. Mm-hmm. So there's a bunch of people living, you know, they become these tribal units later. Now, wh- how, what shifts that? What takes a bunch of Canaanites and turns them into this, this population of 12 loosely confederated groups? Dan, Zvulun, all those folks? Gad, Shimon, all these tribal folk, how how did that happen? So that's, that's the question. And generally, we answer how it went from being filled with Canaanites to being this loosely confederated group of 12 different tribes. We explain that this way. We were in Egypt... And then we took Canaan. We came out of the desert and we took Canaan, and it became this because we repopulated Canaan according to the stories we see in the book of Joshua and in that order. That is our mythic story, that is our mythic history. What, what we think from the archeological record, looking at literature, looking at the history of the time, we're not even sure what the time is, but let's just say there's a group in Egypt, a small group of folk who had an oppressive, terrible experience in Egypt. They left, they hook up with a charismatic leader or are led by a charismatic leader, whichever they hook up in the desert with a group that relates to its God as Yud Hey Vav Hey. That those groups join together and they push into a part of Canaan. Where they begin to take power. They push in. They start to take power. Then that power and influence grows. Then more and more people living here accept the new power structure. Okay, that's what we do in the ancient world. Actually, it's what we do in the modern world. Whoever conquers, that god Becomes the God of the people. Just look at every culture that has been decimated by imperial religions coming in to say, now your goddess is actually Mary. Right? So that is what happened here, too. Most of these people are Canaanite in origin. And have accepted the new order of things and become, because they also had overlords. They also had oppressive experiences. They were serfs living on land that didn't belong to them. They suffered under bad conditions. And so they relate to the story that now is is the story about this time in slavery, this time in Egypt, and this time in the desert. They go, okay, we, we understand that. We can relate to that as our mythic narrative. Okay, no problem. But it is not that these folk were here, kicked out all these folk, and took it. That, that is not history, Blanche.
3: Laura's question.
1: Are you saying I was not answering Laura's question? (laughs) 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 You said the what? The universe is the (laughs)
3: the Garden of Eden. Yes. And once we were kicked out, we deserve what we get. And that's what we're getting. It is not (laughs) Eden, it is war and it is enemies, and it is death.
1: They are writing. That's right. They are not writing, Laura. Mm-hmm. Blanche just answered your question, really. Um, okay. Job security is feeling a little insecure right now. Um, they, they are writing about real life. And so the, it, there has to be war because there's war. That's how people take a new territory is by war. Now, they mythologize that. I mean, there was war. Don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting there wasn't war to take parts of Canaan. I'm not suggesting that. I'm saying there's different times, different kinds, different groups. Da, 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 da. It's always war if you're going to take it. So, back to Richard's point about our country, right? We also fought, and there was war for us to become America. And we certainly mythologized what that was about. Right? We do not want to talk about what we did to the Native American population and it took us a really long time to go there. Right? And to really put it in our history books. We and what we did to the slave you know, the And we're very close. African slaves. So we're just a couple of hundred years later.
2: This is many, many years later than that. Imagine what our story will be five hundred years from now.
0: Exactly. About George Washington. (laughs) Forgot that these are myths.
5: Well, I think then, it was the opposite. Well, is that, well, if they're well, myths, why couldn't we write them better? Yeah, war. I mean, we have right. war. That's our lived David experience. So if we're going to create I'm just thinking, you know, let me let me just change the story. But if it, we're going to create the war. power.
1: Then
5: why not make that power? Cuz
1: it's not completely mythological. Right. They did take land, right. and they did that by war. This I guess that was my American analogy. Right. We we don't make up manifest destiny, meant The British poof disappeared. Right. Right. We, we they, these people remember war. They remember and
3: you're right. that
1: Hebron was demolished and burned to the ground. They, there is historical memory of those battles. The meaning of those battles gets changed over time looking back. But that's how it happened. And so that historical memory becomes the basis of the mythology. Does that make sense? Mythology doesn't come out of nowhere. It's not fantasy. That's exactly right. Thank you. Yes, it's not fantasy. They, they know you take a land by war.
2: But okay. Also, we could have, to, to her point, there are other cultures whose stories are a lot more glorious. And to me, one of the interesting things about the Jewish story that we embrace is it doesn't always show us in a good light. We're constantly going back and forth with God. Uh, it is a cooperative story as opposed to we are descended from the sun god or the glorious god and therefore we are successful, brilliant. Our pedigree is not wonderful and we could have chosen a much nicer story but somehow Jews have been attracted to this one maybe because it is so real. Maybe because it is not so ideal.
0: Anytime you ask a question that presumes an omnipotent god you 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 can't answer that question, which question any question that uh, like why didn't God do fill in the blank? you can't be because indeed we're talking about myths
1: here Oh but we're Jews. We ask all the time. why didn't we're Jews? We ask all the time why did God do it this way and not that way? We' have reams of midrashic <laughs> answers to those questions. We spend so much of our time and lives as Jews studying our sacred tradition in order to say, why if the God Baruch Hu wanted it, they didn't, die because... And then we have 73 different answers, all on the same page. They contradict each other.
3: Even right? in Passover, when we sit down to say four
1: questions. Right, right, that's the game. That's the sacred game, is you ask, why, of an omnipotent God, which is the most chutzpahedic thing you can imagine, Right? That that's what we said we're to
0: do. But isn't that part of what Bert was saying, that we're just always asking these questions, but we're also not perfect. We're, we're not. Yeah. That's why we're always trying to improve. That's why most of us sitting here are probably saying, oh, what things do I still need to do to make myself a better person? You know, what things Because we keep need? asking. Do I still want to accomplish? Do I still want to do to make this a better world? Or
1: to try to, you know, that seems like that's...
0: And we that's can a-
2: We canonize the prophets Who say how terrible Canonize our critics
1: So to To Ruben's point So Why If it says Take a census Of the fighting force Doesn't it just say Count all the males From 20 years old and older This is what we do This is the game So you look back And you go Se'u et rosh Kol adat B'nei Yisrael Lift up Why did I go into This whole business (laughs) Of lift up Because we go Why Why does it say that And not just count them (laughs) And, of course, there's a lot to be said about why. So we've gotten to the sense of se'u et rosh. What does it mean to lift up the head? What do you think the tradition is going to do about why that word is used here?
5: I, I'm, I was about to say that something very exciting is happening here, that each person is lifting up their head and meeting their rabbi. They're meeting Moshe Rabbein, Rabbeinu and the head priest. That's very exciting. Each individual, in theory, is you know they're having Moshe and uh, Aaron do the counting
1: so, so that so they're facing the leaders they lift up their head they lift up their face Sorry. to be seen and known and counted by the leader the general and
5: to actually see and meet that leader
1: okay the general and the pope right are, are both there and they're recognized each one of them, yes. by the leadership. Very exciting.
4: Wouldn't it also be possible that since, since it says all those in Israel who are able to bear arms, that for those people who might be sick, might be infirm, even though they are over twenty, by their lifting their countenance, people would be able to see, oh, you're you're too sick to fight. You stay behind. Or, I mean, just, I mean you, I mean you, I mean you don't, you don't. Go to war with every male, you go to war with your healthy males. Right So lifting up the countenance might also display whether or not somebody was healthy enough to be in
2: the fighting yes, force.
5: Okay. to do the counting.
2: Huh? Well, but they do it with help. This is the interesting thing. It's say all that? The, it says, these are the names of the men who shall assist you. And then there are heads of each tribe who ostensibly would recognize the people.
1: All right, so, they, they their so one of the places the tradition goes is that this is not just about, God forbid, the war. This is not just about the army. This is a metaphor. This is Torah. It's true for all time, not just this time, back there on the whiteboard. It is true for all time. So the Sephardimat asks So, what is the reason this language is used and not other reason? Because it's telling us that every single head, Gilgalotam, Every head, every face matters.
4: Male and female.
3: Yes.
1: So we're gonna get other places right where there's a different kind of counting. So when I'm so I that's why I went back earlier to there's lots of countings and so, but he's saying that the, the language used is lift up the head because every single human being has dignity, every single one has a face, right? And each head was necessary. Because what do we associate with our heads now? Thought, Thought. Thought. Personality. personality, history, perspective. Every single perspective was necessary. Revelation, says the Met is not complete without every single Gilgul that was at Sinai. 600,000 is our mythic tradition about how many were there around that. 600,000 perspectives is what it takes to have complete revelation. Yes, Ruth.
3: As for the head, (laughs) uh, uh, there are two things that that come to me. One is that you separate the men from the boys. And the second thing is that this is the... uh, way that you level the distinction between the clans, and between, and it's not only allegiance to the clan, but there is a greater perspective that they have to wield together into one common force. Okay. Yeah, I mean...
1: So there's an endeavor that takes the entire community Thank you. coming out of their tribal identities and coming into Adat B'nai Israel, that they are the community of Israel. Who are, Who's not to be counted? Women. Women. Anybody. People <laughs> under 20. <Yeah. laughs> what males are not to be counted?
2: People under 20. Sick. People. Sick.
1: Yes. But, but. And... What eligible fighting men are not to be counted? Oh,
5: the company.
1: The Levites. the Levites. The Levites are not to be counted because they have a different tafkid. So the other place the commentators go on our one sentence is, like, is this this word pakad, right? This word about um, leaf. Where is it? I lost it. There's there's there. story, so. T- 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 Here we go, Tif thank you. Tom. Kol all that can go out to war in the people of Israel. Tif Kedu Otam. What is, what is Tafkid? Tafkid in Hebrew means role. R-O-L-E. I think is that? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to spell. R-O-L-E, right, that's a job, right? A, a role. Everyone has their Tafkid. Everyone has their role. These folks are Yotzei Tzavah, are going out to be part of the army. The Levites have their own Tafkid. What is their Tafkid? Take care of the sanctuary. To take care of the Mishkan, to take care, to guard the Mishkan, and if people don't do their Tafkid, what happens? Chaos. If the The Levites don't do their Tafkid, what happens?
2: Could fall into the wrong hands. God won't... Among them.
1: God won't dwell among you, and then you lose. Pff, Disaster. <laughs> Disaster. So or funny. if they are dealing <laughs> with the nuclear force yotzei buffet, and they do their tafkid wrong, they don't do their tafkid. <laughs> nuclear zapage, right? So the the yotzei tzavah, those who go out to war. They have a tafkid. They went out. They went out to scope the situation in a few weeks. And what happened? It wasn't good. It wasn't good. They did not do their tafkid. And in falling down on their tafkid, an entire generation dies in the wilderness. We have to do our own tafkid and only we can do it. And from this the rabbis teach that every single person's role is critical.
3: And so you think about the Israel of today and what's happening in the politics of Israel today and how um, the government are wanting to change the roles of some of the people. This goes back
0: to... The tough kids. Yes. You mean yep. in terms
3: of
5: forcing the of mm-hmm.
4: the it's, it's interesting that uh, within the last uh, 20, 30 years, uh, one of the most popular genre of nonfiction books is the, the type of self-help book that... Helps you try to figure out what your role is. You know,
1: what color what, is you your know, parachute?
4: Or what were you? You know, what were you? What were you born to do? What is
1: your bucket? Or, or whatever it is. What is, what is that is one? How full is your, full is your bucket? bucket? What color is your parachute? We have all this literature about. <laughs> <laughs> what's your what's your role? What is your tafkid? How do we figure out what our tafkid is anymore? Because that genre of literature understands, and like Parker Palmer puts it in, I think, the most poetic, amazing, faith-centered language, which is what is your life calling you to? What is your vocation? Right? That book, The Meaning-Centered Life, or whatever it was? I think that's what I
0: was trying to express some of that, that that's what people are at least, you, are still looking for that in their at least in the things we're supposed to be asking
1: ourselves. Yes. So we are not to see ourselves as pikudim, as numbers, Mm -hmm. but as having tafkid, rule. Right? So it's a very, very important play in Hebrew. Right? Beautiful play by the rabbis. It's about tafkid, not pikud. Don't get them confused.
3: So so are you saying that a person's
1: role in life is
3: static and predetermined? No. No. I'm not saying that. Good. But <laughs> 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 the that's that's big trouble. So the... <laughs> the Levi's did have that role.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but that's not... That, the th- Sphad Ahmed is going to... That's one level. Yeah. That's yeah. the shot. That's <laughs> the simple. So indeed. <laughs> the Sphad Met's going to talk about what is the always true spiritual teaching it's that we because we're not Levites because this time is over we now have to each of us figure out every day what is my tough what is my tough today what would the voice of Sinai call me because for the rabbis Sinai happens every day that's why it says Hayom this day today that voice is still calling us from Sinai what does it, today, right now, what does that voice call me to? So, so much nicer than having to
3: figure out your whole life. I like that much
1: better. Right? <laughs> I'm so glad that I could contribute to like, Linda being a little more relaxed the rest of the day. Um, on an existential level. Right? So, um, so, and this, of course, they tie into the priestly benediction. Right? It's a beautiful teaching that when we do that, when we figure out day to day, what is our tafkid? And we do that tafkid. First off, you don't do it. We see what happens. Disaster. Disaster. When we do fulfill it, then we are causing the divine countenance in response to be lifted up. Mm-hmm. Yisa Adonai Panav elecha. When we lift up our face, when we are present, and when we are ready to be seen and acknowledged and claim our own role, that only each of us, with our unique sets of talents and gifts and interests and perspectives and challenges and weaknesses and histories, when we take on doing that, which only we, each of us, can do in this world, and I don't mean each one of us, is, I mean only I can do what I can do. You can't because you don't have my challenges or my perspective. We, each of them is necessary and when we do that, when we, then, the divine countenance is lifted up towards us is because the, of us.
0: Isn't the, the case that the Israelites were away because the spies came back and gave a a sort of a scary, uh, they were frightened. So isn't that sort of a different explanation as to why the Israelites did not go into uh, Canaan at that time?
1: There are several. There are several because it doesn't say in the text. But one interpretation is because the people believed the spies and didn't go fight. And then God, so then they get schmeiced, and God, then they're like, oh, okay, we'll fight, we'll fight. And God's like, it's too late. And then they go to fight, and they are decimated. And because they doubted, because they didn't trust, they don't go into the Others want to pin it on this moment that Moshe. So there's all kinds of explanations about what exactly it was that blew it for them. But certainly, it's 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 understood that the yotzei Tzavah, their Tafkid, was to go figure out not can we do it? They've already been told by God, I'm with you. It's not they weren't their role was not to go figure out can we do it? It's how should we do it? God's like I'll take care of you, but you still have to go scout the land. You still got to know what direction to come from. You still got to know you know what you're doing. I'm not going to do it for you. Where'd Laura go? I'm not gonna do a fast. That's, that's fantasy, right? But so that they fell down on their tafkid, they didn't do their tafkid, and because of that, a whole generation is lost. So this, so this is where the Sfata Met and the the mystical tradition goes. This idea that when we can live truly into our tafkid, we cause a lifting up of the divine face, which we know is. The state of blessing. What did I give you? What time is it? Ten thirty. Okay.
5: <laughs> well,
1: we did two chapters. Two. We did two psukim. Two, yeah. We did two psukim. Well, the good the good news is, yeah. if you read on, it's not like I yeah. it's not like I skipped yeah. oh, a whole bunch of really meaty stuff to stay where we were it was a little bit deliberate right that we stayed well, where we were because there was more grooviness where we were than and necessarily the next few verses <laughs> right I want to I want to take you to the back of this first sheet that I gave you to answer Ruben For some rabbis, the 40-year wandering was imposed upon the Israelites to force them to study Torah. (coughs) For otherwise, each would take possession of a field or a vineyard and regard himself as not obligated to study Torah. Furthermore, the wandering allowed the Canaanites time to rebuild the country they had destroyed in anticipation of the arrival of the Israelites. This is a midrash. For God had promised the Israelites that they would inherit a good land. The message for us today, this is where I want to go. Many contemporary, contemporary rabbis have pondered the 40-year migration in the wilderness and derived various lessons. Of course. Of course. One of my favorites is this from Pinchas Peli. The book Bamidbar teaches us that there are no shortcuts to the promised land. And no instant transformation, Laura, from bands of liberated slaves into responsible, self-governing nation. No generation of redemption without a generation (coughs) dying out in the desert preceding it. I mean preceding it. Yes? So, for (coughs) furthering Pelly's thought, the 40-year wandering for me, says says our commentator, Rifat Sancino, a famous, famous translator and commentator of our tradition, for me, represents a challenge to every individual who undertakes something new. One needs to take a chance in order to embark on a novel adventure. Progress often depends on taking the first step into the unknown. Surely this risk should be a calculated one based on knowledge after all the pros and cons are measured and not a foolish, uninformed step forward, but one thing is clear... If we take no chances in life, very little is accomplished. you got to buy a ticket. (laughs) Almost everything we do necessitates confronting the future with courage and self-confidence. Choosing a profession or a line of work or to become senior rabbi, (laughs) starting a new business, getting married, moving to L.A. or to another location, and other such benchmarks all require taking risks. The alternative is to go back to the security of early family life, if indeed that security exists, and remain like a child, Blanche in Eden. (laughs) For the Israelites, the wilderness wandering was a training period to learn how to become free and self-reliant. Those who have a slave mentality are not ready to confront the challenges of freedom and novelties of life. And that is the ultimate explanation for why that generation could not be the ones to enter the Promised Land.
0: You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kahil at Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.